one of the challenges of Solomon's reign, if you read the rest of the story, is that Solomon did not remain wholeheartedly focused on God. In fact, Solomon got distracted from the Lord, partly because he gathered around himself hundreds and hundreds of wives and concubines. That was a big distraction, right? Just just the way that some of us have relationships in our life that are a big distraction from the Lord. Solomon went way overboard with his relationships and particularly uh, with those kind of intimate relationships. And, And it says in scripture that his heart was divided away from the Lord and he didn't finish as strongly as he started as far as being focused on God. And you and I, we can see people in our lives that are wholehearted or not entirely wholehearted. And we can see the difference that it makes. Some people are wholeheartedly wrong, right? That's a challenge, but it's one of those things that's really obvious in our world today. I'm thinking, as I was thinking about this, and and forgive me if this sounds strange, but how many of you could tell me quickly who Mick Jagger is? Any of you older heads that, that know Mick Jagger, some of you younger ones? Mick Jagger is the lead singer for the Rolling Stones, okay? The Rolling Stones, one of those bands, they were contemporaries of the Beatles, they've been around forever and ever and ever. The Rolling Stones have sold so many albums, and I don't know how. Because frankly, I've, I've never been a big fan of their music. I like music. A couple of their songs are catchy, but there's just something missing for me. But it struck me at one point that one of the reasons why people love the Rolling Stones, and particularly why they love Mick Jagger, is because he is wholehearted. Have you seen this man on the stage? I remember a couple of years ago, how many was it now that they were the Super Bowl halftime show? And you see this, forgive me, but you see this old man (laughs) in skinny clothing. And he's up on the stage strutting around, singing songs, many of whose lyrics have no real meaning in the world, but people are going nuts and have been for decades. Why? Because he is absolutely sold out that that is what he's excited about. And you can see it on his face, right? You can hear it in his voice. There is something about what he does with all of who he is that draws people to him. And we might look at that and say, well, that's not valuable. That's not worthwhile. But what I'm going to challenge you to think about is what kind of an effect does wholeheartedness have on the people around him? It drives them to be passionate about what he's doing. Now, there are other people who are wholeheartedly focused on the Lord. And they have a powerful effect on the people around them. We talked about this a little bit last week. People who are wholeheartedly into what they're doing for God, and you've been inspired by them, right? Who are some of the people in your life that that they weren't just kind of, well, we're just here. We're going through the motions. We're we're half-hearted. They never say that they're half-hearted, but you can see it, right? Those kinds of half-hearted, milk-toast Lukewarm kind of folks don't inspire much within us, but there's a certain kind of wholeheartedness that can make us really want to be and do things that we might not have done on our own. I remember growing up, there was a fella, uh, I grew up in a church about this size, maybe a little bit bigger, and when I was growing up, uh, we sang hymns all the time, and so there was an organ, and there was a piano, and they led us in hymns, and um, one of the things that we did a lot at our church was singing in four-part harmony. That was just sort of how people naturally grew up doing music. A lot of you in this room might have grown up with the same kind of thing. I still love and appreciate that kind of music. And I used to kind of chuckle to myself because there was a fellow named Clarence at our church growing up. He was older than me. He was older than my parents. And Clarence sang tenor. And if you're going to sing tenor well, you can't do it half-heartedly. You have to really get into it. 
You have to not worry about whether anybody's going to look at you. And Clarence wasn't worried if anybody looked at him at all. He sang his part. He loved it, and he was good at it. But, you know, sometimes it kind of stood out because not everyone in the congregation sang as wholeheartedly as he did. When I was a little boy, it made me kind of look, and I thought, wow, that guy's, that guy's really singing. That's kind of different. But as I was a teenager, and as I was kind of figuring out a little bit more of my faith for myself, and as I began to fall in love with music, I began to admire Clarence so much just for being all in. And he didn't very often miss a note, but if you miss a note, who cares? You're singing to the Lord. You're singing in the church, worshiping God. And he was worshiping God with all of his heart and with all of his voice and with all of his lungs. That made a mark on me. That kind of wholeheartedness. You know who I don't want to follow? I don't want to follow the people that just aren't sure. I don't. Uh, who's watching me? I don't know if I, I better not sing too loud because what are they going to think? There is no inspiration in that for me at all. And you know what I'm talking about, right? This, there is something that comes from somebody being all in, whether it's a great thing that serves the Lord or whether it's some kind of goofy thing that just serves themselves. There is something about people being all in, people being wholehearted that draws folks to them. Last week, we talked about how the world is not as it should be. We talked about how humans directly went against the guidance of God. Adam and Eve, they were not wholeheartedly set on the Lord. Their, their hearts were divided as they listened to the serpent and as they listened to each other. And now, as a result of their decisions and, and really backing up our own decisions, humans live under a curse. We are not in Eden anymore. We live in a world that is broken. People get sick. Things happen to folks who we would say are innocent. Good things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. This is the world we live in. It's not as God intended it to be, but it is as we've made it to be. Now there is pain in childbirth and in our relationships. There is difficulty in our work. The earth is under a curse. Romans 8 says that all of creation is subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but all of creation hopes that it will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know, says Paul in Romans 8.22, that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Things are not as they should be because humanity had decided not to be wholeheartedly set on God. Instead, Adam and Eve and really all of us have decided at one time or another to follow after the other little things that are waved out before us that grab our attention. We can feel this, can't we? Even people who don't know the Lord often have a sense that things are not right, a hunger for life to be better. And so in this world where, where so few people are really wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord, and in this world where so many of us can feel that things are not as they ought to be, we try to live better lives or create better lives. And I see three ways that a lot of people work at this. Two of them don't work and one of them does. One of the ways that, that people try to be creating this life that, that can speak to their heart is that people medicate themselves to rise above the world. Lots of ways that we medicate. Some people strive for power and control because we think that if we're in charge, we can just make things the way we want them to be and then things will be right. Sometimes we think that if we make money, 
And if we can be in control of our environment, if we can decide where we live, if we can decide how to spend the time of our days, if we can provide some comfort and enjoyment for ourselves and our families, we think that that will be real life. And then, and then our hearts will feel whole. Sometimes we medicate by making little worlds for ourselves online, turning to technology to help us escape to the kind of world that we hunger for. This is why the simple games like Minecraft and the new world of the metaverse are so appealing because we know even people who aren't following after the Lord have this sense that our world is broken. So let's just make a new one. Let's make a world that I can control. Well, that's not reality. That's not a real world. That's, that's just medication that we turn to to try to make the pain go away. And it doesn't work. We try to medicate ourselves to rise above the world. Some people... Instead of trying to medicate themselves, try to reshape the world. Reshaping the world, again, we can talk about technology, but we can talk about our cleverness, our effort, and our energy. We try to feed those who have no food. We try to bring money and options to those who don't have it. And we think that if the people around us are more healthy and more whole, that that will help us to feel better about this world that doesn't seem quite right. Some of us work really hard to try to educate the world so that we can collectively rise above ignorance and have a better society. Some of us want to serve the people of our world, hoping that when we help them, we will feel connected and we will sense some meaning. Now, these things are good efforts, right? This isn't bad stuff to do. Jesus tells us to serve those who are in need, to look after the poor. Jesus tells us to to renew our minds and teach others to do the same. God calls us to love and serve our neighbors, but even our best efforts don't wholly change this world. Have you noticed this? No matter how hard you work, no matter how much you give, it seems like there is always, what did Jesus say? The poor you will always have with you. There's always somebody else. There's always someone else in need. And then that person that you've been working with for so long and, and they seem to finally be straightened out, they go right back to where they were before. Some of you have seen this, haven't you? Some of us try to fix the world that we're in, thinking that this will bring some wholeheartedness to our lives and help us to be at peace. But these efforts to medicate ourselves, these efforts to fix our world, they, they don't work either, do they? There's a third way that people seek to be wholehearted, that people seek to find peace, that people seek to really live life. Now, this is the way that it works to turn to God and find life in him. This is where life really comes from. The book of John talks about life a lot. If you need some good reading for today, if you're feeling discouraged, if you're not sure where your foundation is, go and read the book of John in the New Testament. In the beginning of the book of John, it introduces Jesus. It says, in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. All of us who are figuring out that this world is a dark place, if we need some light, let Jesus in your heart. This is where it comes from. In John 4.13, Jesus said that everybody who drinks water, he's talking, about, he's talking about this area where folks used to come, a spring where people used to fill up their, their water vessels. He said, everybody who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them as a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, you find life in me. And near the end of the Gospel of John, in John 20, verse 30, John is starting to wrap up his writing and his study of Jesus. And he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. In other words, John said, so many things happened. Jesus did so many things, I can't even write them all down. 
But John says in John 20, verse 31, all of those things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You're hungry for life. You're hungry for things to be, to be better. Well, the things around you may not change, but you can be changed by Jesus Christ becoming your life, becoming your fascination. By being wholeheartedly focused on him, you can overcome this world. That's why David told his son Solomon 3,000 years ago, yes, do your work, but focus on God wholeheartedly. This is how you're going to find life. Life is found in the Lord and only in the Lord. And I haven't told very many of you anything new today. So far, all of you are sitting there saying, yes, Jesse, we know this. Life is in the Lord. Be wholehearted. Don't be lukewarm. Don't be half-hearted. But the reality is, I think a lot of us really just dabble in our Christianity. I mean, a lot of us, even though we have the hope of the Lord, we don't walk around with the confidence of a Mick Jagger. We kind of we kind of slink around like a high school soloist who's just not sure if they know what they're doing. We wonder why we don't have joy, why we don't have peace, why we don't have satisfaction. <laughs> Sorry, I just couldn't, couldn't help it. A few of you will get it later on when... When your parents tell you. See, a lot of us, though, we just dabble. A lot of us just dabble in our relationship with the Lord. Last week, I read for you Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. It says, the Lord is criticizing his people. The Lord is criticizing Israel. And through the prophet Isaiah, he says, these people come near to me with their mouths. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. There is no life in going through the motions or being half-hearted. We know this. I'd like to spend the rest of our time today looking at a story together in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. If you have Bibles with you, um, if you have your devices, pull them up. We're going to show the, the verses on the screen. Also, a lot of the chairs in front of you, um, we have uh, brown-covered Bibles. There's also some brown-covered hymnals there if you want to poke through. Those are the ones that we brought over from the old church. There's not enough for all of our chairs, but I hope there's enough that everybody can get their eyes on the word of the Lord in Genesis 18 and 19. I'm going to sum up. Hans, what I'm going to do, this will be really fun for you guys in the back. I'm going to sum up chapter 18, and then we're going to jump in chapter 19 at verse 1. So chapter 18, there is a story, and this is a fascinating story. You can read about it when you go home today if you'd like to, but it's a story about Abraham. Abraham is the first man that God called specifically to be his in such a way that he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a nation that's going to be my people. So Genesis 18 is a story about Abraham and his nephew Lot. And this story, the events of this story, took place about 1900 years B.C., just about 4,000 years ago. Okay, so this, this talk of Abraham and Lot, 1,900 years before Jesus Christ. Now, Abraham, as I said, has been called to be the father of God's nation. He doesn't have any children yet, even though he's in his 90s, and God is saying that he's going to be the father of a great number of descendants. God has promised that these things are going to happen. And in Genesis 18, verse 19, God says, I have chosen him 
so that he would direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Now, God blessed Abraham and his family and his household, including his nephew Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew. Abraham's nephew. They traveled together. They worked together. And God blessed them so much that eventually their flocks and their herds were so large, they had to separate. All of their workers, their hired hands, and their stuff was getting tangled on top of each other. There was starting to be conflict. And so, so Abraham said to Lot, he said, look, there are two places we can go. There's a beautiful valley and there's kind of a rocky mountain. Which region do you want to go to? Because we just can't be in the same space anymore. Lot says, well, I'll take the beautiful valley. And that plain where Lot moved to, on that plain were two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 18.20, God and two angels come to Abraham. And God is speaking to Abraham and says, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and the sins of these cities so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. God said, If these are as bad as I've heard, I'm going to wipe them out. Now, by this time in the story, in Genesis 18, Lot, who had decided to move all of his kingdom onto this territory, Lot is living in the city. He's no longer out among his herds and flocks. Lot has, has been drawn into town. It says in Genesis 19, and now we're finally at verse 1, Hans. In 19, verse 1, God is speaking with Abraham up, up in the area where Abraham is living outside of town. But the two angels who were with the Lord and, and who Abraham hosted in the beginning of Genesis 18, these two angels went down to the city of Sodom. It says they arrived there in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. So here is Lot in the city, and he's a man who has, has some standing. He's a man who has apparently kind of been, been brought into this town. He's there at the gate. And when he saw these men, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet, spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. Lot says to them, guys, come and spend the night at my house. I'll take care of you. I'll give you a bed and a breakfast. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. Verse 3, but Lot insisted so strongly that they did go with him. They entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Now, those of you who are parents of young children, we are going to move quickly through a couple parts of this story, and there are a few verses that we're going to let you read by yourselves later on. But we do know what it says in verse 4, that before Lot... And these two angels, before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. Okay? All the men, young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are those men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we can abuse them. And there's a story about an argument. And Lot says, guys, this isn't right. And there's some really strange things that Lot says about his daughters. And, and it, it's, it's a lot of complication. Go read it at home. You'll sort your way through it. I'm not going to read it for you now. But when God said that he was going down to Sodom to see if things were as bad as he thought, God learned very quickly through his angels that, yes, things were as bad as they thought. And so in verse 12, in verse 12, these two angels said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? sons-in-law, sons or daughters or anyone else in the city who belongs to you, get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. Things in Sodom were so bad 
that God sent two angels to destroy it. A couple of things to think about. First of all is the fact that two angels can wipe out a whole city. One more reminder of just exactly how powerful God's mighty beings are. Angels are not just cute little cherubs that sit on your nightstand. These angels are mighty warriors. Another thing to remember is that this was almost 4,000 years ago. Our world is a mess today. There is sin in our world that, that we think that generations before us couldn't even imagine. I'd like to suggest that perhaps those in Sodom can imagine a lot of the sins that we have in our world today. Different day, same story. I don't think God is surprised when bad people do bad things. I don't think we're inventing new sins. We might just have different technology that allows us to do it on a grander scale. But for 4,000 years, and ever since Adam and Eve were in the garden, God has been dealing with sin. So that's something that we can keep in mind. And we remember that God, while he is patient and gracious, God is a just God, marked by justice and goodness. And so here these angels bring to Lot the first warning. Get all of your family out of here because we're going to destroy this place. So, verse 14, Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. If you want to do a fun uh, word study this afternoon, look up how many daughters Lot had. There are some arguments. Some people think that Lot had two daughters. They're the ones who were virgins, who he references in, in some of the earlier verses of this chapter, and that these sons-in-law were men who were pledged to be married to their wife, as this translation tells us today. There are others who say that Lot indeed had four daughters, these two young ones who lived at home and two who lived out with these sons-in-law in the city. Regardless of exactly how many people were in Lot's family, the angels said to Lot, get all of them. All of the people who you consider to be your family, get them out of here. First warning. So Lot went out, spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Now, any of you have a father-in-law who's a jokester? Don't raise your hands, okay? Any of you have a father-in-law that you just roll your eyes at sometimes? There, there goes dad again. Yeah, yeah, that's how he... That, this is where the term dad jokes come from, right? I don't know what it is about Lot and his relationship with his sons-in-law, but Lot said to them, the Lord is about to destroy the city. Lot was in a hurry and Lot was insistent and they still thought he was joking. With the coming of the dawn, verse 15, the angels urged Lot saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away when the city is punished. This is the second warning given to Lot by these angels. When Lot hesitated, verse 16, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city. This is the third warning, now with physical force, taking them by the hands. Verse 17, as soon as they had brought them out, one of those angels said, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. Now, Lot would have known this area. This is the area where his flocks and herds had been gathering. And Lot knew the mountains. This is the area where Abraham was. This is where Lot had come from. This is not unfamiliar territory. 
But the angel says to Lot, Lot, get out of here. Take your whole family and don't look back. But Lot said, verse 18, 19, 20, no, let me go to this little city. It's too far. How can I ever get there? There's going to be trouble. The angel said to him, very well, I'll grant this request. I will not overthrow the town that you speak of, but get there quickly because I can't do anything until you reach it. This is the fifth warning. Go quickly. And verse 23, by the time Lot reached Zoar, that's this little town in the plain. It's kind of going to be his base. It's where he can go and not be destroyed. The sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities in the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. God has wiped out everything because he heard how wicked the people of Sodom were. Verse 26, but Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. That seems harsh, doesn't it? We don't even know Lot's wife's name at this point, but she looked back. There's a couple lessons from this story and I'm gonna go through them quickly because we're running out of time today. First of all, church, there is no life in looking back in being half-hearted and being connected to the things of the past that God is not calling you to now. God very clearly, at least five times, spoke through the angels to Lot and his wife would have heard them. Spoke to Lot and said, get out of here. I'm going to destroy this. Get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here. Come, get out of here. And then he says, don't even look back. There was plenty of warning lest we begin to pity Lot's wife. But what does it say that as she was running, she looked back at the city? Maybe it was just one of those things like you're driving past the car crash and you have to watch. Maybe she just couldn't turn away from it. Maybe though, and this seems more likely to me, maybe she wasn't wholeheartedly following God, but maybe there was a part of her heart that was still in Sodom. But God says, I want all of your heart. And as we go on, we'll in fact find that Lot is not a man whose heart is fully given to the Lord either. And this is near the end of Lot's story on earth. In fact, some of Lot's descendants, the Moabites and the Ammonites, would be trouble for God's people for generations. But there is no life in looking back, in being half-hearted, in letting half of ourselves be dedicated to things that God is not in. There's no life in looking back And church, there is no sense in being wholeheartedly focused on the wrong things. Sodom was wholeheartedly focused. All the men from every part of the city, both young and old, surrounded Lot's house to do things that they should not have done. So being wholehearted doesn't mean you're on the right track. You can be wholeheartedly wrong. I know people like this. Do you? Oh, there's no lack of confidence. There's no lack of conviction. But there's an absolute lack of truth. And so confidence in and of itself, dedication and devotion in and of itself are not necessarily holy things. Our dedication, devotion, and confidence must be pointed towards the Lord for it to bring life. There are people in our world who will argue with you and and they will make the argument and they will try to make you believe the argument that if someone is just sincere with all of their heart in anything, that they'll be fine. Baloney. These are the kind of lies that Satan has been whispering to people ever since the beginning. Satan comes alongside and says, God told you what life is, but doesn't this other thing look better? There's no life in looking back. There's no sense in being wholeheartedly focused on the wrong things. And here's something you can think about. There is a time to leave. It's tempting to think that 
that Lot and his wife and family, maybe they could have changed Sodom. Maybe they could have been the light in the darkness. Maybe they could have been the witnesses there. But there's a whole thing with Abraham argues with God. Well, God, what if there are 50 righteous people there? Are you going to sweep them away? God says, no, if there's 50 righteous people, I'll leave the city intact. What if there's 45? Abraham says, what if there's 40 or 30 or 20? What if there's even just 10 righteous people in the whole city? God, are you going to wipe out the city? God says, no, if there's 10 righteous people there, I'm not going to wipe out the town kind of gives the indication that a small group of folks might be able to make a difference in an area, but it doesn't get down into the individuals. There's an old saying that says, one person can rarely make a big change for the good, but one person can certainly bring a lot of evil in our world. Some of us are sticking around in places where God is calling us to leave. Some of us are leaving places where God has called us to stick around. Church, we don't want to be anywhere unless God's in it. And if God is in something, let's be in it with our whole hearts. Here's what I leave you with today. I leave you with this question. What has your heart? Where is your heart? Is it wholeheartedly focused on God? I don't think I have to preach at you anymore today or tell you any more stories that that indicate how important it is to God that we be wholeheartedly focused on him. Are you wholeheartedly focused on God? Think about what you're doing. If you're not sure if you're wholeheartedly focused, if you're wondering if you're divided, ask a friend to tell you what your heart is set on. Oftentimes your friends can see the things that you can't see in yourself. They might tell you, well, I know you say you love the Lord, but it sure does seem like you spend an awful lot of time somewhere else. And if you have kids, pay attention to the gifts that they get you on Father's Day, Mother's Day, birthdays, and Christmas. Your kids have a knack for thinking about the things that they see in you. If dad plays golf all the time, they're going to get you a golf gift. If dad's always out in the tractor, they're going to get you a tractor gift. If dad's always taking a nap, they're going to get you a remote control. If mom is excited about sewing, they're going to get you a sewing thing. If it's about cooking, they're going to get you a cooking thing. If it's about a job, they're going to get you something for that job. Little kids have a knack for seeing that. Pay attention to the gifts that they get you. They might be able to indicate to you where your heart is. What has your heart, church? In Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul says that we have been raised with Christ, therefore we ought to set our hearts on things above. See, we can control the direction of our hearts. We can control the things that we put attention upon. Colossians 3.1, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. It's the same message for us that comes through loud and clear in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, in Genesis, and Colossians. Live wholeheartedly for God, because life is nowhere else. Would you pray with me? Lord, even now, as we come before you, some of us have divided hearts. Lord, would you please forgive us? Lord, would you please heal us? Would you please tie our broken hearts back together? And Lord, would you please work through our minds and through our, through our souls to make us wholehearted people, people who find peace, people who find joy, and people who find life, even in a world where peace and joy and life seem to be unfindable. Lord, help us to remember that real life only comes from you. And Lord, help us to sort out our lives in such a way that we are wholeheartedly devoted to you and your kingdom and the life that you've called us to, 
Lord, we're not all called the same way, but help us to hear your call. Help us to hear your guidance. Help us to to hear your direction so that we can live out into that life, not just following all the little distractions that have gotten our attention before. Lord, help us to hear your call and to follow you wholeheartedly. Lord, we love you. And thank you so much for this opportunity to think and pray about these things and this opportunity to worship you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, would you stand and sing with us this close?